I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'm going to, in this podcast, highlight some of the April content. The first article that I would like to cover relates to parental presence during cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So, there's an international recommendation for parental presence during cardiopulmonary resuscitation, although this is not universal. In this edition, Trippin and colleagues explore the experience, opinions and moral position of French emergency physicians who had taken a course on parental presence during cardiopulmonary resuscitation and compared it with the responses of nurses on their team by questionnaire. The response rate to the study was 29% for physicians, 53% for nurses. 52% had experienced parental presence during resuscitation at the physician's wish in only 6%. Of note, only 17% of respondents favoured parental presence. That's 27% of physicians and 12% of nurses. The reasons against parental presence were psychological trauma for the patients, risk of interference with medical care and care team stress. The authors conclude that this data set reflects medical paternalism. It's an interesting paper to read and reflect on. In the USA and UK, medical professionals are reported to be more accepting of parental presence. In an editorial accompanying this article, Howard Bankner argues that this should be the case. Parental presence during cardiopulmonary resuscitation, uncommon but yet necessary. The second article that I would like to cover relates to the epidemiology, etiology and management of visual impairment in children. It's editor's choice this month. It's estimated that 19 million of the world's children are visually impaired, with 1.4 million being blind. In the UK, the annual cumulative incidence of severe visual impairment is 6 out of 10,000 at the age of 15, 60% or more of these being registered in the first year of life, with an increase in the numbers of children registered as blind over the last 20 years. In a comprehensive review in this edition, Salibo and colleagues discuss the current epidemiology, etiology and management. The definitions are discussed in detail. The commonest causes of blindness worldwide are retinal disorders, glaucoma, corneal scarring, cataract and cerebral. In higher income countries, severe visual impairment most commonly occurs as part of a neurological or cerebral disorder affecting the visual system due to ischemia, developmental or unknown insults. The increase in preterm birth and increased survival of children with neurological or neurodevelopmental disorders are important factors. The management strategies are discussed from the perspective of primary prevention, that is preventing the insult, secondary prevention, that is early detection of visual impairment, and tertiary prevention, which is managing the child with established visual loss. The sections are detailed and helpful. The authors rightly conclude that paediatricians and other paediatric professionals have a key role in the early detection and multidisciplinary management to minimise the impact of visual impairment in childhood. 
The third article I'd like to cover relates to the important topic of firearm injuries in the USA. So firearm injuries are an important cause of morbidity and mortality in the pediatric population. Srinivasam and colleagues report the epidemiology in the USA by analysis of data from the National Hospital Ambulatory Medical Care Survey. The average annual incidence of firearm injuries was 19,897. That's 23 per 100,000 population. 10% of the injuries were in children under the age of 12. 64% of the injuries were unintentional. Fatality rate was 2%. Injuries were more common in males, black children and adolescents, and adolescents. This is important data. The high unintentional rate is highlighted in the discussion with emphasis on safe storage, education and perhaps consideration of change in the gun laws which have been effective in reducing firearm injuries in other countries. The fourth article I'd like to cover relates to preterm birth and subsequent insulin sensitivity. It's a complicated but very interesting article. It's well known that the incidence of preterm birth is increasing worldwide. It's also well known that being born small for gestational age increases the risk of later metabolic disease. There is speculation that preterm birth may disrupt the nutritional programming window. And in this edition, Tinian and colleagues report a systematic review which examines whether infants born preterm are at increased risk of insulin sensitivity as a marker of the metabolic syndrome, and as a secondary outcome whether there is a difference between those born small for gestational age and those born appropriate for gestational age. The authors identified and reviewed 26 publications representing 20 cohorts, 16 with a term cohort. There was, as is often the case in a systematic review, considerable heterogeneity with the methodologies which precluded meta-analysis. The complexities are covered in detail in the paper. In infancy and early childhood, there was a measurable association between insulin sensitivity and preterm birth. In later childhood and adulthood, the strength of the association reduces and current body composition, reflecting lifestyle and diet, becomes a variable most strongly associated with insulin sensitivity. It was not possible to draw any conclusion regarding the impact of being born preterm and small for gestational age. The authors conclude that although this data doesn't help with the difficult question of how best to feed the preterm infant, it does suggest that like infants born at term, avoidance of obesogenic lifestyle factors long term are crucial factors in optimising health outcomes long term. The fifth article that I'd like to highlight this month relates to the risk of ADHD in children with febrile seizures. So febrile seizures are common and therefore commonly seen. In general for simple rather than complex 
the long-term outcome is good. In this edition, Koo and colleagues report the long-term risk of ADHD in children who had at least one febrile seizure using a large cohort with controls four per case. At follow-up, the overall ADHD rate was 1.66 times greater in the febrile seizures group than in the control group. The confidence intervals are 1.27 to 2.18. Risk factors included multiple febrile seizures, urbanisation and male sex. It's interesting as an observation and suggests that febrile seizures, especially if recurrent, are one of the many risk factors for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I'd like to finish by highlighting a very helpful how to use paper in education and practice this month which relates to the paediatric ECG. It's one to read and have available when you're presented with an abnormal ECG. I would also like to highlight a second paper in education and practice which is an excellent summary of just what epigenetics is. That's a novel concept with exciting prospects for paediatric research. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. I hope very much you've enjoyed this podcast. Please refer to the journal website for a full download of the papers discussed. Thank you for listening.